0: Let's, start, uh, let's go into our uh, sermon for today, our teaching as we continue in our Advent series. So for our Advent series this year, our Christmas sermon series, we're doing something a little bit, bit different, uh, which is that we are looking at uh, what we can learn about Christmas in the context of Colossians chapter 1. And so I invite you guys to open up your Bible. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Colossians chapter 1 uh, on your app or in your physical Bible. Colossians chapter 1, uh, we're, we're slowly working our way through this chapter over the, uh, the these few weeks, so today we're going to be continuing in that. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, if you don't have your Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, don't worry because we'll have the words on the screens next to me so you'll be able to follow along, nobody will get left behind. So once again, we are in Colossians chapter one, starting in verse nine, as we continue in our Advent series. If we're all there and ready, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. We're going to be looking at nine through 14 today. So in Colossians chapter one, verse nine, it says, for this reason, also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the father who has enabled you uh, to share in the saints inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, back in 1914, on June 28th of 1914, there was this parade going through a small town in the nation of Bosnia. It was a parade that was at the very center of it uh, the coming uh, new emperor of the uh, Austrian Empire, who was Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand was riding through this parade in this small town in Bosnia, and as he was riding through on this parade, uh, there was a Serbian assassin who was hiding up on the, uh, Where well, there are multiple assassins, but one of them was there and they had tried to take, uh, take an assassination attempt, one of them failed, the uh, parade route tried to escape, but then finally a Serbian nationalist had caught them and assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife. Now. That might sound to you somewhat familiar if you remember uh, hearing about Franz Ferdinand in your history class. But other than that, it's really just kind—it's of, like interesting. Okay, so that happened, and you know, I'm sure it was shocking at the time. But other than it just being a kind of basic historical fact, it doesn't seem all that important, right? It doesn't seem all that important unless you remember, and some of you history buffs might remember, unless you remember what this event—the assassination of this. Uh, of this emperor, you know, who was going to be over a fairly small empire at the time. Um, unless you remember what that event meant in the context of history. Because what happened in that event, in the assassination of this guy who really in and of himself wasn't all that important in the world at the time, the assassination of this guy was like uh, a domino that was tipped over and was a catalyst to all these other dominoes that then got tipped over, which led to the start of World War I. World War I was started with this little event, right? This, this event, which really seemingly it wouldn't have been a huge deal in the context of history. Uh, other tragic events and assassinations that had happened like that throughout all of human history. So, this would have been just another one of those. But, like I said, whenever you look at the context of this event, that what this, uh, what this assassination meant, what happened here in this small Bosnian town led to a war that took millions of lives that involved the nations all the way from the United States wrapped around the globe to Japan and a dozen uh, or more nations in between, all at war with another, one another. The, their, the very first time that we see modern warfare being used in trench warfare and the horrors that came along with all of this, right? So that huge event, which we know, oh, that meant a lot. That was important. Uh, it, 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 was, it was a big thing in world history, was all started with this little small assassination, which, like I said, in and of itself, doesn't seem all that important or big of a deal until we place it in its historical context. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in history that are like that. that In and of themselves, they might seem interesting, but not all that big of a deal until we place them in their historical context and see what what came out of these little events, right? Like a, 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 uh, a college student working in his garage on a computer for, for hours and hours and hours, which then led to the creation of the Microsoft company right? All these different things like that. And similarly, if we look at Christmas and we just look at the bare facts of it, we look, okay, so there was uh, Jesus who uh, was born by the Virgin Mary, even if you accept all the facts of it, there's Jesus and he was eventually became, you know, he was the Messiah for the Jews, the Christ, and he died on the cross and so on. Like you look at this event of Christmas and you might say to yourself, yeah, it's interesting, but you don't see the, the bigness of it beyond that. Until you place it in its historical context. And you look at Christmas and you realize, okay, this was God, yes, he was sending his son into the world. That's a big deal. But even bigger than that, he was sending his son into the world so that he might achieve forgiveness for sins. Wow, that's even bigger, right? That's huge. But even bigger than that, what is God doing? What God was doing in Christmas and sending his son to the world as a baby, right, in a manger. What God was doing was this was the beginning of the conquest of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of Satan. That is what was happening at Christmas. You see, and so this, this small event, right, the, this, this poor Jewish family who had nowhere to go, but other, other than you know, there was no place for them to stay, uh, this baby was born in a manger, that small, seemingly insignificant event was where, if we place it in its its historical context, we see was the initiation of the kingdom of God making its way onto this earth. The beginning of the conquest of God, the king, over the kingdom of Satan, over the kingdom of sin, over the dominion of darkness, and so on. This is what God was doing in Christmas. Whenever we celebrate Christmas This is what we are celebrating. And so you see it becomes so much bigger, so much more important, so much more life-changing even to understand that this is what we are celebrating more than just uh, family get-togethers, good food, the music, the movies, all these things, which I love. I love all of it. We're celebrating something so much bigger than that. And so what I argue is that if you don't get this, the Christmas kingdom which came, Whenever Jesus was born, then you don't get Christmas. You don't understand it. What we're going to look at this morning, as we and from what the from this passage that we read, is we are going to learn about this Christmas kingdom. We're going to learn about the kingdom and how we live in it. We're going to look at three things. We're We're going to look at the journey of the kingdom, the lifestyle of the kingdom, and then the gift of the kingdom, which was inaugurated or began in Jesus' birth on the first Christmas. So the journey, the lifestyle, and the gift of the kingdom. Let's begin by looking at the journey of the kingdom. If you read Paul's letters, you know, you don't have to be a scholar or go to seminary to see this. If you read Paul's letters and you're somewhat familiar with them, then you'll notice that he follows this kind of standard pattern, right? He always starts with an introduction. He says, hey, this is Paul. Right? And he said, you know, an apostle, or he says, or chosen by God, or something like that. He says, hey, this is Paul, and grace to you, and, and peace to you. And then he goes on to talk about all the things that he's thankful for with whoever he's writing to, whether that be the Corinthians, whether that be the Colossians, the Ephesians. But he has this portion that we always call the thanksgiving. He just says, You know, I'm so thankful for all these reports that I'm hearing about you, or I'm so thankful for uh, what, your, your testimony of faith and so on. And then after that, he goes into this section where he then prays for them, and then he gets into the body of his letter. And so, like I said, you really have to be a scholar to see this. If you read his letters, you might start to pick up on, to like, oh, okay, he always follows this kind of standard pattern. And that's what Paul is doing here in the, his letter to the Colossians. Last week, we looked at his introduction, his greeting, and then his thanksgiving, where he described what he was thankful for in the Colossians, which was their response to the gospel. He was so excited, and he was praising God, and he was letting them know how thankful he was to hear of how they had been responding to the gospel, how they had been responding to it with faith and love, how they had been responding to it with character transformation, with joy, and all these different things. And now he moves from his, his thanksgiving, as we call it, all the things he was thankful for, into his petition, his prayer prayer. And essentially what Paul is doing here as he moves on from what he is thankful for in them into his prayer for them is he is petitioning God on their behalf that they would continue in what they have started. That's essentially what Paul is doing here, and that's what he's doing in in the passage that we read just a few moments ago. What Paul is doing is he's saying, you know, I thank God that you guys responded in this way and in that way and that you're bearing fruit and so on. And so essentially what he's doing here is he's praying, now I'm just praying that that would continue. The way that you responded to the gospel, you need to keep responding to the gospel. And so this is what he's doing here in this letter and and, and what we have to learn from in the things that happen and how we respond to the gospel. And the first thing that wants to see in how he's praying for them is this phrase here. It's kind of an interesting uh, thing that he says. Um, In verse 10, he's praising God and and he's praying that they might continue in the way that they have been going. And in verse 10, he says, uh, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. He prays that they might walk worthy of the Lord. This leads us to our first point, point. then we're going to explain it. Our first point is this. Life in the kingdom is a journey towards Christ. Life in the kingdom is a journey towards Christ. And that's what we get when we look at this interesting word here. It would be easy for us to skip over it, but let's zoom in on it. This interesting word that he decides to use where he says, that you might walk worthy of the Lord. And what does he mean by that? I think if you grew up in church or if you grew up even around some Christianity, even a very uh, surface-level Christianity or spirituality, you might have heard metaphors like this before because it is something that became a common metaphor, uh, especially in the New Testament, but we can see in the Old Testament as well, which is that the spiritual life is like a journey. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Because obviously, if we're reading it literally— if we're, if we're not treating it as a metaphor and we're reading it literally, then it would make no sense at all to say that we might walk worthy of the Lord. Like, like Paul is literally talking about the way that we walk, the way we use our feet, and that, and that we might walk around on the sidewalks or on the track at the gym or on the treadmill. That we might walk in a way that's dishonoring or honoring or what, may, what does that mean, right? But we understand that that is a metaphor that Paul is using here where he is describing our spiritual journey and and our spiritual life is is, is a journey. It is like a a walk that we go on, and that's what he's getting at here when he's praying for their walk, because life in the kingdom of God is a journey. So talking about life in the kingdom and this journey, what does it mean? What what does that mean on a day-to-day level? What does it mean on a day-to-day level to be a citizen in God's kingdom and to walk worthy of the Lord. Well, here's what that means whenever we apply that, that, that metaphor to our lives. What it means is this, is that it means that our life, if you are in the kingdom of God, right? If you experience that transfer that Paul talks about at the end of that passage, and we're going to look at again uh, in more detail later. If your life has been transferred from outside of God's kingdom to inside of God's kingdom, the big change, the day-to-day change that happens now that you are a citizen of God's kingdom, it means that your life is now lived in a Godward direction. I know that that's a new term; it's a term that I, that I made up. Okay, but your life is now lived in a Godward, right? In a God pointed, in a God oriented direction. On a day-to-day level, this is what it means to journey in God's kingdom. Because our spiritual life for all of us, whether whether you're a Christian or not, whether you consider yourself even a religious person or not, all of our lives are being spent on some kind of a spiritual journey. We are walking in a direction after something that is either the God of the Bible or it's something else. It is a God that is presented to us by the culture. It's a God that is presented to us by our family. It's a God that we, that we perhaps maybe choose for ourselves. No, you might not call it a God, but maybe you call it an ideal. You call it your vision for the future. Maybe you call it your values. Maybe you even call it you know, your traditional values or your family values. But your life is oriented around those things. Your life is oriented around those things. And so, and so in the journey of life, even in your uh, deep inner spiritual life, you are walking after that. And you, are, uh, and you are pursuing after that. Now, here's the thing. Traditional values, family values, or, or maybe the vision that you have for your life, in your career, for your family, that you're working towards, those things in and of themselves are not bad. right? I'm not against family values. right? I'm, I'm not against traditional values. I'm not against any of those things, whatever vision you have for your life. I'm not against that. But here's the thing. If we make that the central aim of our heart, even something as good, right? Even if something as good as your marriage, as good as your family, right? Or the marriage and family that you, that you want to have one day, as good as those things are. If that is the central goal, if that is the central aim of your heart that you have chosen for yourself, friend, that is a journey that is not going to end well because you you were made to live on a journey that is, that is walking after and walking in a direction after the infinite personal God who made you to live in relationship with himself. That is what your heart was made for. That's what it was designed for. That's, that is the fuel that the engine of your heart was meant to run on. This infinite God who created you to live in relationship with himself. And so here's the thing. If we place our spouse, if we place our children even, like I said, as good as those things are, There's not many things that surpass the blessings of of a family. If we place even our our career ambitions, if we place our our, our, uh, social ambitions in that spot where God was meant to be for our hearts, and then we try to start sucking out of those things what our heart was meant to run on, which was the infinite God, out of things which are not infinite, out of people who are not God, they're people. Right? They're, They're weak, they're broken, they're they're messed up, they fail. They're dumb just like me and you, (laughs) right? If you try to get all that that you were made for out of those people, out of these relationships, you know what you're going to do? You're going to turn your God into a devil. You're going to turn something that was meant to be a blessing to you into bondage to you because you're taking that good thing and you are trying to get something out of it and use it for something that it was never made for and that you were never made to get out of it. Your life must be lived in a Godward direction. And then all of those other things, the family, your, you, the career that God has called you to that you're in and, and, and your neighborhood and everything else. You live in that Godward direction and then all those other things are then allowed to fall into place. They're no longer what you're looking toward, looking for to satisfy your soul to sit in that seat of the infinite personality who is God that you're made for. Now instead, that they are not, since they are not there, they are free to be the blessings that they were meant to be in your life and not your God. Life in the kingdom means that whereas you once followed after selfish ambitions... And maybe even those things we might not call selfish. I mean, we could we, we could push into that some. But maybe those things we might call might not call selfish. But that we, we, those things which we have self-appointed as this is the ultimate good in my life that I should chase after that my soul should long for. Life in the kingdom means that we are no longer following after those selfish or self-appointed goals, directions, and that we are now living in a Godward direction in our life. Now He see, sits in the seat of supremacy over our life. He is the ultimate authority. We pursue after him as our ultimate good, as as, as that which is uh, better than any other good in this world, as that which is more beautiful than any other beauty we might find in this world. Right, Our life is now lived in this Godward direction. Whenever Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of God, we read in the New Testament about uh, walking in the light and so on. This is what it means. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in one of the phrases there, the author wrote, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. You see here a a slight variation of the same metaphor, life being a journey or life being a race that we are running on, no races are ran in a direction, right? What is the direction? He says, we run the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So how do you win the race? You win it by running in the right direction. That's a good start. What's the right direction? Having your eyes fixed on Jesus. You see, friends, that's, that's the race that you were meant to run. This is the journey that you were meant to be on. This is the kingdom that you were created to live in, as we're going to see even more in a second. Prior to Christ, you lived life in a self-centered or self-appointed direction. Becoming a Christian does not mean that God now just helps you to continue following after all those old gods, idols, or directions. It's a brand new journey. It is a brand new direction. He reorients, he reprioritizes everything else now as you follow after him. So how do you do this? How do you follow this new journey, this new destination? Paul tells us, you must fill yourself with the knowledge of his will. That's what Paul says walking is how we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in verse 9. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So you must be filled, as Paul says, with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me help you to think of it this way Have you ever received a gift from someone, whether it be a family member or maybe a co worker? If you you, look, you work in an office or, or, or a place where, you know, you do these gift swaps or so on. You receive a gift from someone, and it's nice that they tried, but you, you look at this gift and you say, this really isn't for me, <laughs> right? Like, this is not something that someone who knew me would really get for me, right? You know, it's a gift that kind of reflects poorly on the gift giver. It shows how they don't really know you that well. It's sort of like, you know, if one of you guys, and you, you say, oh, I love my pastor, and so I want to get him a gift for the holiday season, just to, just to say thanks, give him an attaboy and encouragement. And so you, you gave me a, a frozen yogurt gift card, right? Now, those of you guys who know me know that there are two things I believe in, that Jesus is king and frozen yogurt is garbage, okay? And so if you got me, if you got me a frozen yogurt gift card, I'd appreciate uh, the effort, right? But I'll tell you, but, but that gift card is going to go somewhere else. It's not going to be staying with me, right? And so if you got me that present, it, it would reflect that, that I appreciate it, but you really don't know me that well. You don't know me that well. Have you ever received a gift like that before that shows the person they didn't really know you that well? Or maybe you were on the gift giving side. You know, you, you tried to guess well and it didn't work out. Here's the thing. If you want to please somebody, you got to know them and you have to know what pleases them. If you're going to give someone a good gift that pleases them, you got to know them so that you know what pleases them, so you don't give them the frozen yogurt gift card, right? And vice versa, if you're on the receiving side of that. So if you want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, and as Paul says, and is pleasing to him, then what do you have to do? You have to be filled with the knowledge of his will. You have to know God. You cannot know about him. You cannot be familiar with Him through your family. Some of us, right? We are just familiar with God through our family, through our spouses, maybe, or maybe if you're a parent, through your if you're if you're a child, maybe through your parent. You must know Him for yourself, and you got to really know Him. You can't just be familiar. And you've heard the stories before, but you got to be fam- you got to know His will. You have to be in His Word to to see. Okay, if this is God telling us about himself, well, then what does God want me to know about him? You've got to know him. You must know God in order to know how to please him, to know how to obey him. And this is something that you do in participation with the Holy Spirit. Because notice what Paul is doing here. You see, in my application, I said, you need to fill yourself. But what Paul says, I kind of re- reworded with what Paul says, what Paul says is he is not speaking directly to them, but he is praying to God that they might be filled, okay? But then he goes on to then tell them that they need to, uh, that they need to uh, grow in the knowledge of God. And so what do we do with that? In one sense, he says, Father, fill them with the knowledge of your will. And then he says to them, you guys need to grow in the knowledge of his will. What does that mean when we take those two phrases together? It means that this is something that we do in participation with God's spirit with the Holy Spirit. This is something that we do with him. And so what that means is, is that, you know, a lot of you guys have a desire for knowledge, and I love that, and that, and that resonates with me, and maybe it's, it's one of the things that you attracted here to this church because you saw that I'm somebody like that too. But you can't just read theology books. You can't just listen to great sermons on YouTube, right? Even if you go and read the word, but you do not read the Bible Uh, in an effort to grow closer to the person of God, and and you read his word uh, and and pray along as you read it, trying to grow grow closer to him, but instead to just fill yourself up with intellectual knowledge, then that's not the same thing as truly knowing his will, as Paul talks about here. Because what does Paul say? He says he prays that they would be filled with God's spirit, because it must be done with God's spirit. He prays that they'd be filled with God's spirit so they might be filled with, what does he say? He says, with all wisdom and understanding. It's pretty interesting that Paul uses those, that, that phrase that he says, with all wisdom and understanding. What scholars point out to us is that with all wisdom and understanding, this is a phrase that we see a couple of times in Scripture. You know where else we see it? We also see it in Aristotle's book on ethics, uh, I can't remember how to pronounce it, Nicomachean Ethics, something along those lines. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, writes that there are three cardinal virtues, three cardinal virtues, and two of the three are, you know what, wisdom and understanding. What this phrase means, it's a very rich, deep phrase in, in both ancient literature and in scripture, and that is what Paul is using here. What that phrase means is it is, a like I said before, knowledge of Christ, of God's will, and then this, and then of how to live in this world based out of that understanding. That's what uh, Paul is talking about when he says, fill with uh, all wisdom, that's the wisdom of Christ. Knowing Christ, knowing God's will, and understanding. Understanding is that, how do I live with this wisdom in the world? So... The journey of the kingdom. We live life in a Godward direction, and we do so by being filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and understanding. But the question is what does this pleasing lifestyle that we have, if we are filled with the knowledge of His will and we're walking on the journey, what does this pleasing lifestyle look like? You see, because the obvious implication of what Paul is getting at here, that if you're filled with the knowledge of his will, that you have all wisdom and understanding, like I already explained, then what does he go on to say? He then goes on to say all these application points. He goes on to say, so you guys need to continue bearing fruit and growing in that knowledge being strengthened and, and, uh, and, and so enduring and having patience. He talks about giving thanks. And so what the obvious train of thought here is in Paul, and which we can see just in this little passage here, is that this knowledge that we grow in, this wisdom that we grow in, once again, it doesn't just stay up here, but that it then leads to change in our life. It leads to change in your life. In other words, intellectual transformation, which comes in the gospel— uh, Proceeds and produces behavioral transformation, character transformation, as that seed of the gospel is planted into your heart, and it then it then goes down and it begins to grow and produce life inside of you. Then then that transformation that happens inside of you then works its way out into making an actual difference in your life. So if you're on this journey, there's going to be a lifestyle that's going to come along with it. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be evidence in your life that you are walking in that, on that Godward ro- road. And so let's look at these, this lifestyle that Paul describes. This is the second big point. Life in the kingdom is marked by bearing, enduring, and giving. This is not comprehensive. We've got the Bible for the comprehensive description. Okay, We've got the whole New Testament for the comprehensive description. Here's just a few points that Paul gives us in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Okay, So this isn't everything, but these are some good ones for us for today. Life in the kingdom is marked by bearing, enduring, and giving. Let's look at each one of these three. What do they mean? Bearing and growing. Paul says this, uh, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. What he's getting at here, this is really incredible. Whenever Paul uses this language of bearing fruit and of growing, this, that phrase might sound kind of similar to you if you're really familiar with your Bible. And scholars point out that what he is doing is he is intentionally picking up on some terminology, which is connected to, can anybody guess it? The creation story. In the creation story, whenever God creates the world, he fills it with life, and then he fills it with people, there is this mandate to his people to what? Bear fruit and cultivate Right to bear fruit and grow that fruit in the world. What scholars point out here is that Paul is intentionally trying to use some key words to bring back in his, in his hearers' minds or to bring back into our minds that mandate and that language, which goes all the way back to the beginning of time, to the creation story. What God is doing whenever he uh, he sends forth the gospel and he calls a people unto himself, and then we respond to that gospel, and a part of our response is that at the beginning and then as we grow, we will continue bearing fruit in our lives, which is what I said before, that visible evidence, what Paul says here, the fruit of good works, of all the good works that we can possibly do, right? And we continue to grow in all these ways. What we are doing is this. God is recreating a people to fulfill his first purpose in creation before sin corrupted the world. What God is doing in Christ is he is creating a new humanity through you, through his church, what God is doing is he is restoring the world, trying to bring back into the world through the community of his people uh, those who would be fulfilling the mandate which goes all the way back to the creation, that we, through following Christ, living this godward directed life and bearing fruit and growing in that fruit and in knowledge, that we would be restoring the world through our good works and God working through us, that we would be uh, working in that restoration project. That God is doing through us and that He is going to perfectly fulfill one day in the future. So, whenever Paul tells the Colossians and he tells us that he hopes that they would continue to bear fruit and grow, understand he's talking to you about things which are so much better than just simply following rules. If you're gonna follow Christ and obey Him, you're gonna have to follow some rules, okay? (laughs) So, I'm not saying that you're not going to. But it's so much better than oh I just I was given these rules and so I gotta follow them. Understand, no, no, no. We 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 follow his commandment, we obey his commandments, we obey his law, but we do so because this is the blueprint for how we join God in his work to renew and restore the creation. Bearing and growing. That's the one of the life's the the first marks of the lifestyle in the kingdom. Bearing and growing fruit and good works and growing in knowledge. But then he also talks about enduring. He prays that they would, uh, through being strengthened with all power, that word power there in the Greek is dynamis, which is the word from which we get a word dynamite. Right. So this is, this is a volatile, explosive, this is real power that he is talking about here. Being strengthened uh, with his power according to his glorious might. Why? But why are you being strengthened? Okay, as I said before, You are not being strengthened and brought into the kingdom so that you can just continue chasing after all the old things you did before Christ. That's not what you're being strengthened for. You're being strengthened for this, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Endurance in what? Endurance in the journey. Endurance in that righteous path. Endurance in that Godward road that we walk on now as citizens in the kingdom of God. So he strengthens you with power so that you might endure on that righteous road, so that that you might endure in those bearing fruit of good works. Not for our own goals or for our own ambitions, but endurance on the kingdom journey. Bearing fruit and growing, enduring, these are marks of lifestyle in the kingdom. And the third one that we have in this passage here is giving. What he says is he says to them that you might have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks To the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. One of the great marks of someone who has received and responded to the gospel is that their life is marked by a joyful thanks that they are now in the kingdom of God, that they have been recipients of God's grace. Joyful thanks. Citizens in the kingdom of God are marked by joy and gratitude. Citizens in the kingdom of God are not marked by cynicism. They are not marked by uh, uh, hoity-toity, sticking your nose up, feeling better than everyone else because you are so good and because of all your good works. No, it is, it is, it is, it is a joyful, thankful, humble doing of good works. As I said last week, every time we see a um, portrayal in the media, or in movies, TV shows, or wherever else today. Every time we see a portrayal of what the world imagines a really radical Christian looks like, what are they like? They're usually bitter. They're usually angry. They're usually kind of a nutcase. all these different things. But according to the New Testament, that is not at all. You know what a really, really radical Christian looks like? It looks like somebody who you just are never tired of being with them because they're joyful, because they're humble, because they're thankful for their life, they're content with what God has given them. They're the kind of person that we often describe with a term, and this can kind of be a mushy term, but I think it can be used well too, but the kind of person we often describe as a life-giving person, right? because that joy that's inside them is just flowing outward, and, and man, it kind of helps you too. A really radical Christian, that's what they are like, marked by joy and gratitude. And so let me ask you this, does your life abound with these marks of the kingdom lifestyle? Does your life abound with these marks of the kingdom lifestyle? Let me try to help you think through this, give you some tests, by helping you to see what is the opposite. If your life instead is marked by frustration, you, know, if you, you often find yourself frustrated, impatient. If your life instead is marked by frustration, impatience, jealousy, jealousy of what you see others have, of, what, of the kind of, portrayals of people's lives you see on social media, discontent. If you're marked by these things, then these are the signs that you have a lack of joyful gratitude because the antidote to that discontentment, to that jealousy, is to instead look at your inheritance, as Paul describes it here. Look at what God has given you along with all the rest of the saints and to be grateful for those things. And then to be grateful for the icing on the cake right he hasn't just given me the kingdom but he's given me this too you know he's given me my family or he's given me these friends or he's given me this opportunity to do this job or he's given me this and that right gratitude for what god has given you so is your life marked by frustration jealousy discontentment or is it marked by that joyful gratitude let's keep working our way up is your marked is your life marked by indulgence in sin indulgence in sin is it marked by hiding your life from leadership? Hiding your life from the leadership in your church, the leadership in your D group, the leadership in your team that you might be a part of, or if you're involved in a campus ministry? Hiding your life from them because you don't really want it to be seen and subjected to that, that person of authority who has been called by God to uh, tell you, to, to call you and proclaim to you to repent from your sin, right? And then walk in obedience? Have you been hiding your life? from that kind of accountability? Have you been hiding your life from that kind of uh, godly leadership? Have you been experiencing a lack of discipline in your life? Maybe it's not that you're indulging in gross sin. Maybe it's that, uh, not that you're necessarily hiding anything from someone, but then at the same time, you know, you're, not, you're not really steady on the road either, steady in the spiritual journey. Is your life marked by any of these things? These things are the opposite of endurance endurance is discipline on the road it doesn't mean perfection doesn't mean perfection none of us are perfect i am far far from perfect but it means the discipline that when you fail you get back up on the road Whenever you whenever you wander off the righteous pathway and god he convicts you or a friend or a leader points it out to you it means you have the discipline to repent and get back on right Lastly, fruitlessness. Fruitlessness is the opposite of bearing fruit, obviously. Is your life marked by fruitlessness or is it marked by bearing fruit? You know, my favorite, my all-time favorite Christmas movie, I love a lot of them, but my all-time favorite one uh, is the classic It's a Wonderful Life and the in the movie it's a wonderful life george bailey comes to this place where he's ready to just throw it all away he climbs up to the top of a bridge because he's going to jump off because he has been just going through so much adversity he's been going through so much uh, opposition. He feels like his dreams over the course of his lifetime has been crushed because he keeps choosing his town and his family and all these other things over his own dreams, his own pursuits. He's got nothing to show for it. And so he's just ready to end it all. And so this angel who's trying to earn his wings, if you've seen the movie before, this angel who's trying to earn his wings has to go and stop him. Right? He's got to go and stop him. And what he does is this. He says, George, he says, I want you to look at what life would be like in Bedford Falls if you weren't here. And so he starts to show him all the, all the different ways that that town would be different, that his family would be his family would be so different. You know, the random uh, shopkeeper that he worked for, his life would be so different. The whole town would be different in all these different ways because without him and without all the times that he had chosen what he was called to in his life over his own dreams and ambitions, and he had stayed faithful to those things, and he had sacrificed, it had brought about all this fruit in his world. In other words, it had brought about a real difference in the world around him. And my goal in life and the reason that's one of my favorites is because I want to be able to look around and say I have actually borne fruit. If you looked at your life and you your presence from your home, from your church, from your job, from your neighborhood, if your presence from all these places was just plucked today, would it make a difference? Would it make a difference or would everyone just go on as normal? because you haven't been producing any fruit. You see, I'm not saying that we're all going to be George Bailey's and have an impact on the entire town. I'm not saying that we're all going to be the people who have a a huge major impact maybe on the corporation or the large organization that you work for. But you know what? You can really bear fruit in your home. You can really, really make a, a real difference in your home, in your family. You might not have... Tons of friends like George Bailey did at the end of the movie, right? But, but you might have a couple, and those couple of friends, you can make a real difference in their life. Is your, mark, is your life marked by fruitfulness, bringing about real change and a real blessing to the world around you, or fruitlessness? So is your life marked with these signs of the kingdom lifestyle or a lack of them? Let's close by looking at the gift of the kingdom. You know, every now and then, I have to give you guys a grammar lesson. And I know some of you groan, some of you get a little excited, right? Now, whether you groan or you get excited, we love both of you. (laughs) Even if if you're one of those weirdos who get excited, we still love you too. But I just want to point out a a small grammar lesson here that we should note in this passage. Paul... He, he does it a couple of times, but especially as we get towards the end of the section that we read today, Paul subtly changes his verb tenses. You remember your verb tenses that we learned about? He talks about these things that he's praying would continue in the Colossians' lives, that they would be bearing fruit and that they would be growing and that they would be enduring, as I said before, that they would be giving thanks. These are active tense verbs. These are active tense verbs. These are things that he is calling for, praying for in their lives. But then when we go into verse 12, there's this subtle shift from the active tense, things that they uh, should be doing on their own in their power as much as they can, right? There's this subtle shift then in verse 12 uh, and, and 13 to the passive, where Paul says this, giving thanks to the Father who then, now, we're, now they, are, they are the passive, who has enabled you, to share in that inheritance. He has rescued us. You see that shift from the active, bearing, growing, sharing, right, doing all these things, to the passive, to being the ones doing the action, to then the ones receiving the actions of someone else. Whenever he's, Paul says, he has rescued us. You see, friends, so if you look at your life and you recognize that you're, you are not marked by a kingdom lifestyle, Your life sounded a lot more like all those opposites that I talked about. Or maybe you look at your life and you recognize that it is not being lived in a Godward direction. It's being lived in a selfish selfish, or in a self-appointed direction and so on. The goal for you, if you are living in the dominion of darkness or you are lacking in these things, is not that you must rescue yourself then. Paul does not pray, Lord, empower them and enable them to rescue themselves, to make things right, to fix it. He changes The verbs change, and it's so important that we get this, because he then says, he has rescued you. That's the key. If you're going to really get this, and if you're going to enter into the kingdom, and if you're going to see that Christ is worthy enough and beautiful enough and deserves to have your life oriented towards him, that he deserves your all, then you need to see this that he is the king who has invited you into his kingdom, but that he is the king who has rescued you. He is the king who has qualified you to be able to enter into his kingdom. Is there any other king like that? There's no other king like that. In order to enter their kingdom, you've got to prove yourself worthy to be a citizen in their kingdom. Is there any place of work that you go to and they make you worthy? Right? To work there, no, you got to present your resume. You've got to show your work history. You've got to show your pedigree. But in the kingdom of God is the exact opposite. In the kingdom of God, it is not our resume. It is not our good works, but it is the work of Christ on our behalf. It is, it is his power, not ours. It is his goodness and righteousness, not ours, that then qualifies us. You see, here in the CSB that I read, it says that God enabled us. To share in the inheritance. But in a lot of other translations, and you can use either word, but a lot of other translations, it says that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance. And you might look at your life and think to yourself, how could that be? How could that be that I could ever be qualified, right? That I could ever be worthy to even have the chance to try to walk worthy. that <laughs> How could I ever be made worthy of being able to enter into his kingdom? How? It's because the king himself has rescued you out of the dominion of darkness. He has rescued you out of the kingdom of Satan whenever the conquest of the king began at Christmas. How did he do this? He did it by purchasing us from that dominion of darkness. He did it by purchasing us out of slavery to our sins with his own blood. He is the king who shed his own blood, who gave up his own life so that you might receive the blessings of being a citizen in his kingdom, so that you might receive that blessing of sharing in the inheritance of the saints and all, all of the good things of God's favor that come along with that, so that you might be able to walk and journey on that Godward road. How is it possible he purchased your ticket. He purchased your freedom. He qualified you, though you were unworthy in yourself, with his blood, with his blood. This leads us to the last point that we'll close with. The gift of the kingdom is the freedom purchased with the king's blood. That is the gift of the kingdom that we are welcomed into, that we are made, that we are qualified, enabled, that we are rescued out of the dominion of darkness by the the redeeming action of our king and so we can then experience his restoration in our lives let's pray father help us to see the magnitude of how christmas changes things lord at, in this season that we celebrate together in the parties and in the dinners and the in the music and the uh, time with family, in all these things and in, in these gifts that we, that we soak up and enjoy, Lord, let us not lose sight of, of the big, big picture of what you did, not just in our own personal lives, but what you did cosmically in this world, of how you changed history in Christmas, beginning the conquest over the kingdom of Satan, over the kingdom of sin, by sending your son in the manger. Lord, so that through his work, through the sacrificing of his blood and his blood purchasing us out of that dominion of darkness, transferring us into his kingdom, for washing away our sins, forgive so that we may be forgiven of our sins. Lord, so that we might remember that through these things, you reconciled the world to yourself. God and sinners are reconciled because of Christmas, because of the work of our king. So Lord, we just ask that you would help us to see the beauty and the wonder of your grace in the gospel so that it might flood into our hearts, that it would transform us, create a new spirit and a new heart within us that desires to please you, that grows in the knowledge of you so that we would know how to walk, so that we would know what it means to live in this Godward-directed life, to stand on the righteous path, growing in discipline, growing in good works. But we ask that There might be transformation here in our lives and our community through Christmas because we are people who have been transformed by your blood. We pray these things in the name of our King and Savior.